Good morning, church family. I would just ask that you would stand with me for the reading of Scripture. Isaiah 45, 1 through 7. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, darkest, darkness riches stored in secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I call you by name and bestow on you a title of honor. Though you do not acknowledge me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. May God bless the reading of his word. Our Heavenly Father, our only response is thank you for loving us first, sending your Son. And Lord, we just uh, pray for our dear brother as your spirit indwells and speaks through him, that he would share a greater level of understanding on your most precious holy word that many have gone before and even died for, for our name, for our, your name's sake, that we can read and understand you more. In your precious name, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you, Kev. Well, good morning, IBC family. I trust that you had a rich, full, blessed week this week. You are blessed, even if you did not acknowledge that, but I pray that you were able to recognize that, and uh, I know on Wednesday evening when we get, many of us gathered together here, uh, Wednesday evening it was a rich time. We got uh, just a, a, a friendly reminder of how blessed we are, but also the encouragement to take the time to acknowledge the one who has blessed us. It's one thing to be thankful. It's another thing to give honor where honor is due and to thank the one, the source behind every good and perfect gift, which ultimately comes from above. And so I trust that you had a a wonderful week and uh, you're not too weary from all the festivities. And, uh, well, I'll just try to keep you awake here for the remainder of our service here. We'll just see what happens. And if you're not... I have every ability to see you and call you out, so it's all good. Uh, this morning, we, it's kind of crazy to think about, but we actually come to the end of our series on the attributes of God. Uh, we started this way back at the beginning of June, and you know, as a pastor who's kind of putting some of these things together, or these sermon series together, I know Pastor Mike can relate to this very much. So uh, at the beginning of every series, you always wonder, you start planning it out, and you kind of wonder, I wonder how this is really going to play out. I wonder what God is going to do through all of this. And so as has been said over and again, and just to kind of re- reiterate what has already been said, uh, this has been a rich time together, knowing who God is as he reveals himself. You know, the impetus behind this series was uh, really just kind of camping out and, and meditating on the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. And specifically in Jesus' prayer to his father, Jesus says this, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what Jesus acknowledges in his high, what we call the high priestly prayer in John 17 is this. Jesus says, this is eternal life. Knowing God as he really is and knowing his son Jesus Christ has eternal significance for both you and me. And not just eternal significance, but our knowledge of God and, and your relationship with, Jesus, with God shapes ultimately your worship of God. In fact, we could probably put it this way. Your worship re- of God reflects your knowledge of God. Your worship of God reflects what you truly think about God. That's why we've been, uh, that we kind of, we highlighted A.W. Tozer's quote that is so pertinent to our series that we began back in June. A.W. Tozer is kind of noted for saying this, what comes to our minds when we think, when we think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And the reason for that is this. What you think about God has eternal significance. It translates in your worship of God. And of course, dovetailing or on the heels of that quote, it's imperative that we go, does what come to my mind actually reveal the true God as defined and as revealed on the pages of Scripture. Well, obviously, as we kind of discussed in the very beginning, but for the sake of reminder and kind of capstoning this this series that we've embarked on together, there's a significant problem when we think about knowing God. And that problem is this. You and I, all of us, all people have a distorted perspective of God. So on one hand, it's imperative that we have a right understanding of a God, and on the other hand, we have to acknowledge a serious foundational problem, and that is this, we all have a distorted understanding of God. Every one of us has adopted a perspective of God to some degree that is too small. In fact, most people have domesticated God and have reduced God to manageable or controllable terms. Most people have thoughts about God that are just, we might say, are just too human, and they're not divine enough. And therefore, the only way for you and I to truly know God, as Jesus prayed in John 17, is to understand what God says about himself, specifically what he says about himself on the pages of Scripture. It doesn't mean that we can fully comprehend God. God, the scripture is very clear that God is incomprehensible. We cannot fully grasp God, but he is knowable. Not comprehensible, but he is knowable. And he makes himself knowable. Well, this morning, we touch on one final attribute of God. And that this isn't because this is the last attribute. We have not exhausted the attributes of God. This is just the final attribute that we are going to discuss for this series. There, are, there is so much more. And I think as we've gone through this series over the past six months, I think that's been very evident. There is so much more. We are barely, oh so barely, scratching the surface of what is to know and to understand. But the final attribute that we are going to discuss this morning is the attribute of God's sovereignty. Pastor Mike already introduced uh, when he preached last week this concept of God's sovereignty, especially as he talked about the eternality of God, the eternalness of God. You see, in a universe where everything has, been, has a beginning, every, uh, every being has had a beginning except for God himself. Only God is eternal, eternally past as well as eternal future. Everything else has a beginning, but God does not because he has always existed. In fact, we see in Colossians 1, everything comes into existence by him and for him. Therefore, because God is the only eternal being by which all things and all divine beings and all people have their existence, that makes him sovereign 
over all creation. Now, it is important that we define our terms, right? Because I can throw out all kinds of terms and language, and, and you might be going, I have a, maybe an idea of what you're talking about, and this part of the room might define sovereignty in one way, and this part of the room might define sovereignty in another way, or from row to row, who knows what, you're, what comes to your mind when you think about sovereignty. Let me just tell you very clearly and up front what I mean by God's sovereignty. Sovereignty means that God is supreme over all things. Sovereignty means that God is supreme over all things, that that no one or nothing is above him in any way, that he is Lord, that he is master, that he is ruler over all creation. It means that he not only has the ability or, or the power to rule because he's omnipotent, right? We talked about the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of God, but God also has the right or the authority to rule. In fact, that God is sovereign means that there is nothing outside of his control whatsoever. There is nothing that is not already foreseen or planned by God. Therefore, because God is sovereign, he is free to carry out his eternal purposes and to see them to completion on his terms. Now, why does God have this authority? Why does God have this authority? Why why does the buck always stop with God and with his son, Jesus Christ? Well, we kind of already answered that question. Because he's the only eternal being. Everything else has a beginning, but because he's the only eternal being, therefore he has the dominion and right to rule over all creation because he is the source behind all creation. But to kind of dovetail or to to compound that even further, you can look at Revelation chapter 19, for example, and this speaks to the Son of God, Jesus who Scripture says very clearly that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let me just read this passage of Scripture in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11 here for us. This is John the Apostle, the Apostle who is he's exiled to the island of Patmos. And while he is exiled to the island of Patmos, God gives him this glorious vision. We call it apocalyptic vision of things to come. And this is in part the vision that John received by the Lord and conveys to us. He says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul, another apostle, on the heels of just talking about the ultimate example of humility as exemplified or manifested through the person of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul then after that says this, therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what is our sovereign takeaway from just these two passages alone? 
What, what do we conclude about the fact that God is sovereign and His Son eternally sovereign? Well, first of all, we must understand that Jesus isn't just a king among many kings. He doesn't share his rule. He doesn't share his dominion. He doesn't share his authority. He's not just a king among many kings. He is the king above all kings. We also see that Jesus is both the instrument of God's grace as well as the instrument of God's wrath. And one day, as Scripture tells us, all creation, everybody and all the heavenly beings that exists today, Every, everything that exists on earth, everything that exists under the earth, everything will one day bow down and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's not, they don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord because one day he will finally become Lord. They will acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord because he is Lord right now. He is Lord today. The question is, will you acknowledge him as Lord today? Once again, how you respond to that has eternal significance for your own soul. You see, those who confess Jesus as Lord now will inherit eternal life, the scripture promises. But those who wait to confess Jesus as Lord will inherit eternal death. Now, just in case you're not convinced that Jesus is Lord right now, in case you're not persuaded that that God has been and is sovereign over all his creation, I just want to look at a, a sampling of Scripture that stretches across human history. Pastor Mike touched on a couple of these passages, so I won't spend too much time on it, but in Genesis 15, for example... We read this, the Lord said to Abram, who later became called Abraham, it says, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring them judgment on the, bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And even as we read, even last week, they did come out with great possessions. What God is doing in Genesis 15 is kind of hearkening back all the way to Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to raise you up, and through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. You have no family right now, but one day you're going to have this family as many as the stars in the sky. Just look up in the sky, Abraham. That's going to be the number of your family members. That's going to be your family tree, so to speak. And in Genesis 15, God reaffirms his covenant that he made with Abraham, but he also tells him, hey, but by the way, don't be surprised. There's going to be some things that happen that seem confusing, maybe even that seem to be the opposite of what I've promised you. In other words, you're going to be held, brought to this promised land. You're going to have a great nation. We think so optimistically about that. And God says, oh, by the way, they're going to be in Egypt for 400 years. They're going to become slaves Wait, how does that fulfill God's plan? And then God says, but don't worry. I'm the one in control of this. I'm the one dictating this. I'm the one leading this. This is what's going to happen, but I will raise up a deliverer called Moses, and he will lead people to the promised land. Well, that's exactly what happened. Moses is raised up. He's groomed in the wilderness. He comes back at the ripe old age of 80 years old. That's good news for some of us in here. God has purposes and plans that he can still and wants to use people. He comes in, raises up, uh, uh, delivers the people of Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians through many, many different plagues that God promised he would do from the very beginning. They start wandering into the desert, and God is leading by, by a pillar by day, uh, a cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. Everything is good. And then guess what? God leads them, not the most direct route through the Philistines, but he leads them to this dead end called the Red Sea. What in the world is God doing? Well, he tells us. We see in Exodus chapter 13 what God is actually doing. He's saying, I'm going to lead them to this dead end. Nobody's going to really understand what's going on. Pharaoh's going to think one thing, but actually I'm doing this all for the glory of my name. 
He says in verse 3 and 4, For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So what we see is that from Israel's perspective, and if you read that account in Exodus, Israel's anxiously frantic. I mean, they don't know what's going on, and they start complaining to Moses, and and, and they're saying, why did you bring us out into the wilderness? At least we had food. At least we had shelter back in in Egypt, and now we're out in the middle of nowhere, and we're going to die at the hands of the people that have enslaved us for 400 years. How can this be a really good thing? And of course, Moses is getting the raw end of the deal, going like, I'm just doing what I'm told here. And he pleads with the Lord and says, and the Lord gives him clear instruction, say to the people, and he raises a staff. We see the, that God is sovereign over his creation, the natural laws of created order. He splits the Red Sea. The whole nation of Israel walks through on dry land. Pharaoh's army follows them. They get stuck. The whole, all the sea crashes back in. The entire Egyptian army is wiped out. Now, some of us in here might be going, that sounds like a great fairy tale. That doesn't sound like reality. Neither did marching around the city of Jericho. Hey, I got a great wartime strategic plan for you. March around, start singing worship songs to me. On the seventh time, let's do it. On the seventh day, let's do it seven times. And the most massive uh, fortress called the city of Jericho implodes. Again, because this is not about the might and power of Israel whatsoever. It is about the might and power of a holy and sovereign God. Why does God do the things he does in the manner in which he does them? To glorify himself. To draw attention to himself. To say, it's all about me. Not about you, but about me. I think about, as I think about how God worked through the people of Israel, especially in the Red Sea narrative, perhaps like the people of Israel, you might have also asked questions like them. Maybe asking questions like, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? Why did you allow this in my life? Why, even in my obedience, have you allowed these unique trials to take place in my life? God, what are you doing right now? Could it be, and I say this somewhat as a rhetorical question, could it be that the Lord has moved and worked and orchestrated certain events in your life so that he might bring glory to his name? Could it be that God has orchestrated and allowed certain things in your life so that he might transform you as well as further equip you for future divine works to do through you? We also see God's sovereignty on display by how he raises and how he removes kings and rulers and dictators. In Isaiah chapter 45, Kevin already read it for us this morning, so I won't necessarily go through the entire passage, but one thing I want to identify in Isaiah chapter 45, this is God really speaking through his prophet Isaiah, and he's, ra- he's, talking to, he's talking about how he's anointed and raised up this person called Cyrus. Cyrus is the ruler of the Medes and the Persians. Again, there's been all kinds of superpowers during that time. First, it was the Egyptians. Then they were wiped out. And we had the Assyrians, and they were wiped out. Then we had the, the Babylonians, and they were wiped out. Then we had the Medes and the Persians, and they kind of came in. They were the dominant superpower. This is just how human nature and human history has unfolded from generation to generation. Now Cyrus is being raised up. But listen to the language in which God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. He says, thus says the Lord to his appointed, to Cyrus. So Cyrus is appointed, but he's not a God-fearer. 
He's not appointed because he, he loves the Lord and he's, he's worshiping God. He's appointed by the Lord even though he doesn't even know God. And God says, the Lord has to, listen to what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. Look at verse 2. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. Verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. The last part of verse 4. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not even know me. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. The end of verse 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So who's really in control here? Pretty explicit, right? Is Cyrus the one actually doing all these things? Well, on one hand, yes. And on the other hand, we see on a whole other level that God is the one also accomplishing his purposes through this ruler, through this king called Cyrus. In fact, if you look at what happens before Cyrus comes in and takes over the Babylonian kingdom, before the Medes and the Persians come in, Babylon was the, the dominant superpower at that time. In fact, if, uh, just to give you a give brief history, when the Assyrians were the dominant superpower, Babylon came in, they wiped out everybody, they pretty much control all the Middle East, everything into kind of eastern uh, uh, Russia at this time, they, everything to the north, they basically, they, they were the dominant superpower. And they even came in, they took over Judah. Israel was already taken over. They come in, take over Judah. They take the Judah's youngest and brightest and, and most successful people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their Babylonian names. And we see that they're coming in and they're kind of basically the Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon says, I'm basically just making a name for myself. It's all about me, according to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, we see in Jan Daniel chapter 2, that, uh, that God has another plan for Nebuchadnezzar. That even though Babylon is in, quote, control and is the dominant superpower at the time, we see that God is actually doing something that is unbeknownst to anybody at that time. We see that Nebuchadnezzar has this very troubling dream. So troubling, in fact, that have you guys ever had a troubling dream? I mean, nightmares are kind of troubling, but you guys wake up going like, what in the world was that about? You know, in the West, we do not pay attention to dreams very much. But in, in biblical times and other parts of the world, we've, we probably should learn to pay attention to those things because God actually does and can speak to us in those ways. Well, guess what? God is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't even know it yet. All he knows is that he's extremely troubled. And he calls up all the wisest men, the sorcerers and, and all these kind of soothsayers and everybody else, every, all the wisest men. Hey, except for Daniel. Daniel and his, and his companions were not called in. He says, I want you to interpret for me the dream that I just had. They said, no problem, O king. Tell us your dream and we'll give you its interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar is not an idiot. He's no fool. In fact, I think he, 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 in a right way, does not trust the, quote, wise men in his kingdom. Because he's like, you're just going to tell me what I want to hear. You're just trying to, you're, you're all about yourself. You're just serving yourself and telling me what you want to hear. So guess what? You know what? I'm not going to tell you the dream. I want you to tell me my dream and then give an interpretation. Gulp. So here's the wise men going like, well, nobody can do that, O king. Tell us your dream and we'll give you its interpretation. He's like, no, you tell me the dream that I had and then I'll know that you have some sort of divine connection and then give me its interpretation. Guess what? They couldn't do it. So guess what Nebuchadnezzar did? Okay, 
you're obviously worthless. You're, get, you're all getting killed. So he says, I'm going to kill every wise, quote, wise person in my kingdom. That includes Daniel and his companions, even though they were not in the king's court at that time. And so what happens is the captain of the guard comes to Daniel and says, I'm sorry, Daniel, we're going to have to kill you. And Daniel's like, what's going on? In that moment, he has favor with the captain of the guard. He says, give me a, an audience with the king. He goes in. He says, oh, king, give me one evening. Give me one evening to give you uh, the, the, your dream and its interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar did that night. Daniel and his companions, they, they pray to the Lord, and guess what he does? God gives him the dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. And the next morning, he, pr- he praises God, and he says this in verse 21 in Daniel chapter 2. Is it up there for you? He says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding and reveals the deep and hidden things. Well, Daniel eventually, he says, here's the dream, O Nebuchadnezzar, and here's its interpretation. And guess what? It was correct. So much so that that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 47. The king answered and says, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealers of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. So guess what? Nebuchadnezzar is convinced, right? Now Nebuchadnezzar knows that God is above, the God of Israel is above all gods, right? Not quite. Now he's starting to catch on going, wait a second. Wow, this is something unique. I've never seen this happen before. But we see that he isn't quite convinced yet. We see that in Daniel chapter 3. A chapter later, we see that this dream that he ultimately had was about a big statue. It kind of gave him a wrong idea. So Nebuchadnezzar builds this golden statue and says, hey, it's a golden statue of me. Aren't I amazing? In fact, I think I got this great idea. I'm going to have this statue out in the middle of kind of the the field there. And the moment the band starts playing, everybody's going to fall down and worship me. What a great idea. Very humble guy. Um, Yes. And so they, he, the band starts playing all the rules. Everybody has to start bowing down and worshiping, except for guess what? These Judah exiles that, that we brought over, we named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they got tattletailed on. We use tattletale a lot in our house. They tattletailed on them going, hey, you know what? They're not bowing down and they're not worshiping you. And so Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, they already have a great rapport with the king, so he doesn't immediately kill them. Again, he built this furnace. Whoever doesn't bow down gets thrown into the furnace and burned alive. Well, he goes, hey, I'm going to give you one more chance. One more chance. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, save your time. We're not bowing down. And our God can absolutely deliver us. And even if he doesn't, just know, king, that we will not bow down to your worthless, I don't think they said that, but your worthless statue. And so what happens is they get thrown into a fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar is so furious, so angry, that he says, make the furnace seven times hotter. And they throw Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego into the furnace. It's so hot, the people that threw them in died because of the heat. And then at a distance, Nebuchadnezzar standing around with some, uh, at a safe distance going, wasn't there three people that we threw in there? And yet I see four, one like the Son of Man. That's a whole other message. We won't go into it right now. And he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. Come out. And he says, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. What's the sovereign takeaway? Not only that God can override the laws of nature like fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they come out. They don't even smell like smoke. They haven't even been around a campfire. It's as if nothing ever happened. God is not limited by any deliverance or ability. He can override even the wicked intentions of people. 
And finally, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's finally acknowledging and understanding that the God of Israel, the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he is the only true God. He's the one who is truly in control, right? He finally gets it, right? Not quite. We get to Daniel chapter 4. Man, we're going through Daniel right now. Daniel chapter 4. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. He finally says, you know what? He's reminiscing about his own account. He's looking back on his own life and rule and going like, man, this was an interesting time in my life. And I won't even go into the language right now, but basically he's walking. He has another dream. God speaks to him to another dream. Daniel gives its interpretation. Unfortunately, this dream that this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that Daniel interprets isn't good news. It's not good news. In fact, what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar is that he's about to be humbled by the one true God, and he's going to be kind of turned into this wild animal. And even though Nebuchadnezzar believes him in the moment, it did not take long for him to hit for his big head to get back. And he's walking one day on the. um, He's walking one day. On the, on the porch, looking out over his kingdom, looking at the landscape, and this is what he says. Is not this great Babylon? Daniel chapter 4. Are we in Daniel chapter 4? Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Again, very humble, right? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made like made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So God humbles and removes the greatest king, the superpower of that time, and turns him into like a wild beast, like a wild man, a crazy person. He's out in the fields like a, like a, a, like a, a cow just eating grass, crazy. People know, everybody kind of just kind of keeps their distance from him. It doesn't last forever. God eventually raises him back to his throne, and then this is Nebuchadnezzar's response. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What is Nebuchadnezzar finally coming to grips with? What is he finally realizing about the God of Israel? He finally realizes this, that God is the one who has authority over all creation, that it is his dominion that is on, that is on display. It's not a temporary authority. It is an eternal authority, the God of Israel. God's kingdom is not a temporary kingdom, but it is an eternal kingdom, and no one can resist the sovereign will of God. Not even the world's greatest leaders in that moment. You see, IBC family, when we think about the sovereignty of God, the rule or dominion and authority of God, we must understand that from Genesis all the way through Revelation, we observe account after account, example after example of God's sovereign care. That God governs all his creation. That God is the one who causes kings and rulers and dictators and, yes, even presidents and prime ministers to rise and to fall. God is the one who works through the actions of people to bring about his redemptive will. Now, some of us in here might be asking at this juncture, well, what about man's free will. 
What about our free will? I mean, God can't violate our free will, right? Is our will truly free if God can override it? There is much to be said on the heels of clear indications of God's sovereignty in Scripture. And this is just my invitation for you to bring me to coffee one day and we'll continue the conversation. Because there is a whole lot more to be said that I would love to talk about, but I don't feel like any more um, complaint cards going in because we went too long today. But there's much to be said. Let me just say a few things to, to promote our future conversation over coffee. First of all, yes, God does grant us free will. The heavenly beings, the heavenly realms, the angelic realm, all those things that, that, we, that we hear about in Revelation and other prophetic books, we hear about those things. God gave them free will. God has granted us as human beings, both man and woman, free will to make choices. If you do a quick Google search, you, Google says the average adult makes 35,000 conscious decisions every single day, meaning we're constantly making choices that both that either benefit us or hurt us in some way or hurt others around us or benefit others around us. We're making choices all the time. We have the ability to choose what we want to do, what we want to eat, what we want to wear, and, yes, even whether or not we want to obey or disobey God. We have that choice. Yet when we consider God's overarching redemptive will for his creation, we must understand that nothing can stand in the way of God's will, no matter what decision you make. I think A.W. Tozer provides an illustration. You might have heard of it before, but an illustration that helps kind of capture this in kind of a simple way is this. Um, He says, it's much like a cruise liner heading across the Atlantic to Liverpool, right? He says it leaves New York, it's going to Liverpool. The cruise ship is headed to that destination. It's filled with lots of people making all kinds of decisions all the time. And yet there's a, there's a determined destination for that cruise ship. The illustrative parallel is that God has already determined his redemptive will. Yes, we make our decisions and we are free to choose. And we reap what we sow by the decisions that we make, both good and bad. But ultimately, our decisions do not undermine God's redemptive will. It's the only reason why you, cannot, you and I can have a confidence that when we read apocalyptic literature, like some parts of Ezekiel, the, last, the second half of Daniel, or all the way through Revelation, we see that God is telling us this is what's going to happen. The only reason why you and I can rest confidently that, that God is going to be in control of what's going to happen is because he's the one who's actually in control, not us. Now, we miss out by making poor decisions. We miss out by not partnering with him, but at the same time, God will accomplish everything that he has purposed to do. Think about Genesis 50, for example. We have the account of Joseph. Joseph obviously was mistreated by his brothers. He was left for dead. He got saved at the last second by one of his brothers, sold into slavery, forgotten in prison, and through a whole string of terrible accounts, eventually becomes the second in command in all of Egypt. And then he sees his brothers come. And his brothers obviously didn't like him when he was a young punk, but then later in life they come because there's a major famine in the land. God used Joseph to save all the people, and this is what he says in Genesis 50, speaking to his brothers, do not fear, because guess what? They were fearful. They're like, this is our brother. He, no doubt he hates us. He's got to hate us right now. Do not fear. For I am in the place of God. For am I in the place of God? Question mark. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Did you catch that? Again, we'll go through it when we go through the Genesis very shortly. 
But you see, what Joseph's brothers intended for evil, they, they were jealous of Joseph. They were jealous of the fact that their father loved Joseph more than them. And so they wanted nothing to do with Joseph. It didn't help that he had these visions that they were all going to bow down to one day, which, by the way, was prophetic about things that were, were going to happen eventually. They didn't like him. And they said, enough is enough. They got rid of their brother. And now they're realizing, oh, shoot, there's a guy that's second in command. He could kill us in the snap of his finger. And we are fully dependent upon our well-being at his generosity. And even though whatever they did to Joseph in jealousy and wickedness, God used for good. As Joseph even acknowledges to save all people from the famine in the land and ultimately to save the people of Israel. Or consider what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, when he preached his first sermon that God used to save 3,000 souls, right? He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. A chapter later, we see that uh, Peter and John, after they heal a lame beggar, they say this, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as you did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So the question is, who killed Jesus? The wicked men or God? And the answer is both. God predestined and worked through the free will of people to accomplish his redemptive purposes. You might be asking yourself at this point, how in the world does that even work? And here's the short answer. I don't know. I don't know or can't fully grasp or comprehend the layers of our genuine and true free will. It's truly free. And at the same time, the sovereignty of God working through the genuine free choices that we make every day, and yet God is ultimately accomplishing his redemptive purposes and seeing it to completion at the very end. How that works, I don't know fully. Not even partly. But here's one thing we do need to understand. Just because we can't understand or comprehend all these attributes like sovereignty... Well, let me just say it this way. Comprehension of God's attributes is not required for acceptance of God's attributes. Full comprehension of who God is and, and, and what he is like is not necessary for accepting who God is and what he is like. It just means that God is far greater than we are, far more eternal it means that he's a God who can be trusted. He's not a God that we've made in our own making. He's not that a God that we've reduced to make controllable and manageable. He is a God outside of our control. And that is a good relationship to be in. Because he is the one who is navigating all things. What does that mean for you and for me? Let me just say this very briefly. First of all, what this means for you and what this means for me is that we can rest in the sovereign hand of our Father in heaven. We can rest in the sovereign working of our Father in heaven, trusting that anything that happens in our world on a global level is not outside of God's attention, nor is it outside of his direction. No, everything that occurs on a global scale, scale can ultimate, will ultimately accomplish one thing, God's redemptive will. So as you turn on the news, because I know you are, as you're flipping through your news app, because I know you are, and as much as we discourage you from doing that too much, we, I know you are, 
And I know maybe your blood pressure is going all, all you know, going up and down, up and down. And you see all kinds of chaos on the, the social landscape of our country and around the world. May I just say to you that God is not surprised. God is not frantic in the heavenlies wondering, oh shoot, what do I got to do? He's not, and he's not just the ultimate chess player going, okay, I got another couple moves up my sleeve here. That is not how God is. God is going, everything is falling into place, brothers and sisters. It is not our job to understand why God or how God goes about accomplishing his redemptive will in it, for his world. Our job is to trust him, to keep coming back to necessary points of reference that he is good and his love and his mercy endure forever and that he cares about all people and that although wicked people do wicked things, God is not going to waste any of it and he will accomplish all that he has purposed to do. And you know what? He is slow to enact justice so that many would come to saving grace and faith in Jesus Christ. You know, so much of us in here are probably going, you know what? I can think of a few different nations, a few different groups that maybe I want destroyed right now. And aren't we so just and gracious and loving in that? I'm so glad that none of us in here are God making the decisions. I'm so glad that God in his patience and in his grace is going, I desire that many would come to know me. And what's glorious about that is that God can take wicked actions of people and save people through it. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? That God would use the wicked actions of people and to save many for eternity. There's a second thing that I think we can walk away with in regards to God's sovereign care. And this is more on a personal level. Rest in God's sovereign care for you. You are not unknown to God. We've already talked that God is omniscient, right? He knows everything. And he cares about everything that he knows. Rest in God's sovereign care for you. Rest in the fact that God knows your finances. He knows your living situation. He knows your health. He knows your relationships, especially the difficult ones. He knows your marriage. He knows the events that seem confusing in your life. God doesn't take a break from working in our lives. Quite the opposite. Everything in our lives is happening for a reason, even if we don't understand it right now. A philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, I'm not even sure how to say his name totally, but he says this in a very blunt and uh, graspable way. He says, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. We call it hindsight. My life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. In other words, we walk, in a sense, blindly, and we look back, and at moments, not always, not fully, but we look back going, oh, that's what God was doing. Let me give you a, a real-life illustration of that. My daughter and I, Katie, we, uh, we started our own in-house bacon book club, and so I'm looking for ways that I can connect with my children. So what we're doing is, since Katie's a very avid reader, we're starting to read bibliographies together. And uh, we just got done reading The, the Hiding Place by Corey Tin Boom. I'm not sure if you've read that book or not, but Corey Tin Boom, uh, an incredible account of God's sovereign grace and provision in her life and as well as her sister's life, Betsy. You see, Corey... 
Her sister Betsy and their father, they used to hide Jews during the German occupation during World War II. They lived in Holland. He was, their dad was a watchmaker. It was a family business. Been in the family for over 100 years. Same house. German occupation happens. Holland has always been a neutral country, though they did not have the option during World War II. And so German, German come, Germany comes in. They start taking over everything. Their house was always, according to their father, our house will always be open to anyone in need. That was their motto. And so Jews started coming in in need and hiding. And they, they, uh, this other guy came in, built a false room with a false wall, and they would hide Jews. They had a whole thing. They had the, all kinds of stuff worked out. I mean, it was all about trying to fly under the radar until one day someone who they thought was on their side actually turned them in for self-serving gain. They got arrested. Everything shut down. They're sent off to prison. Their father dies. They find out later, 10 days later. Her sister Betsy and Corey are in this, this prison in Holland. Of course, then the Allied forces start coming in. They start advancing. Germany's starting to get frantic. They start moving all their prisoners, everybody in these prisons, to Germany to these places called concentration camps. Well, Corey and Betsy get to Ravensburg, a concentration camp, and they get thrown into this building called Barrack 28. Barrack 28 was designed to fit 400 people. 1,400 women were put in that barrack. So you can, you can envision what that must have been like. They were literally sandwiched in three, four levels high of these kind of platforms that they would sleep on, moldy hay and straw, infested with lice and fleas. And even Corey relates. She's like, God, really? At least you could have had no fleas. I mean, we're going through all this other stuff right now, but fleas, really? I mean, they're biting at them. I mean, it's just terrible. We live life moving forward, but we understand it looking back. One day, Betsy tells Corey, Corey, I realize why God brought us fleas. What? God brought us fleas? I realize why God blessed us with fleas. You see, what they didn't, the, the, the German occupation was everywhere. They were in a concentration camp. The guards were everywhere. They could not hide. They smuggled in a Bible, and God allowed it to stay hidden. And their barrack was so flea-infested that the German guards would not actually go in the barrack ever. Ever. And so they led Bible studies. And denominations were a non-issue. In the concentration camp, by the way, I think we have something to learn even in a non-concentration perspective. Denominations were out the door. It was all those who desired hope in Jesus Christ. They came together. They're leading studies. The guards never once walked in because they did not want to get infested with fleas and lice. And so Betsy goes, God brought these fleas so that we might be undistracted, so that we could continue to minister. In fact, Betsy Corey's sister said this, God has brought us here so that we can minister to these 1,400 women. Talk about a different change in perspective, right? We would think of it, this is terrible, this is bad. And Betsy says, God has brought us here to this miserable place so that we might minister to these women. Oh, Corey, says Betsy, I can't imagine when this is all said and done that we'll be able to share with the world God's love and his forgiveness. Guess what? Betsy dies. And through a clerical error, Corey is released. She was not supposed to be released. A week later, everyone else was gassed in a gas chamber. She was clerically, had a clerical error. She was released and for the rest of her life, traveled all over the world sharing the forgiveness that God provides and the love that he offers, fulfilling the vision of her sister Betsy. Do you think that God isn't in control? You see, brothers and sisters, just because bad things happen 
doesn't mean that God doesn't care. Yes, brother. In the 50s. She was here in the 50s. Wow, in the 40s. She was here. Wow. I did not know that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, she has had, uh, she had, she's already with the Lord now. There's even an account. Let me just say this, since I'm already going longer. <laughs> no, this is important. As she's going around, she's even in Germany, she's sharing. And, and you've probably heard this story where she's sharing, and she, she just gets done sharing about the forgiveness of God and the love that he offers And then she's done, and people are saying hi and shaking her hand. And guess who walks up? One of the concentration prison guards, the first person she had to undress herself in front of, shower, be humiliated, be defiled. And he comes up to her, hand extended, saying, Dear sister, I am now a brother in Christ. And she's like, I can't do it. I will not grab this hand. I just got done talking about forgiveness and the love of God, but I cannot grab this man's hand. I hate him. And she's just having this moment of paralysis, and the man is standing there with his hand, now a brother in Christ, receive the grace of God. And as she grabbed the hand, she said, in her act of obedience, this it just flow of energy went raging through here, and she was completely released of any resentment or hatred, anger, and she loved and forgave this man. Look what God can do. Do you wonder that perhaps in order to show the world the forgiveness that God offers freely, Do you wonder that he doesn't use us to be living examples of that forgiveness and of that love? Brothers and sisters, let me just say this. God is in control. And whatever is going on in your life, whatever is maybe even tormenting you right now, whatever you are struggling with right now, whatever it is that is plaguing you right now, whatever it is that you're just wrestling and grappling, and if you're thinking, oh, if this was gone, all my, everything would be so much better. May I say to you that God is using this for his glory. That God will use this. He will not waste it. I'm pulling a total audible right now, so we're going to just kind of change the way we're wrapping this up. But Shelly, I want you to come forward. Yeah, you, Shelly. I want you to come forward, and I want us as a church to pray for Shelly. She has been tormented by many brain tumors. She is currently has a brain tumor that is growing. It needs to be operated on. They have to go through good tissue to get to the bad tissue. It's not really good no matter how you look at it. But I would love it right now if we as a church would pray for you. Can we do that? Yeah. So church, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet right now. And, And whoever wants to come forward... Shelly, why don't you kind of come forward right now? If you want to come forward and lay hands, is that okay, Shelly? We're going to come forward and lay hands on our dear sister, Shelly. And we're going to ask that God would even use a terrible thing like brain cancer to glorify himself. Let's pray, church family. Heavenly Father, right now. Right now, Father, we just ask in the name of Jesus that you would just invade and consume and that you would fill Shelly's life. We know that she loves you, and we know that she also feels very alone, especially because she's estranged from her family. But yet, you have given her a spiritual family. 
And Father, she has been walking a very hard road. She has been struggling. She's been in pain. Uh, There's been confusion. And nobody would ever wish to be in this situation, yet here she is. So Father, we just ask in the name of Jesus that you would heal her. Father, you are not limited. You are, not, you, are, you are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. So, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, would you glorify yourself by doing a work that we cannot do, but you can. So, Father, we just ask, would you please heal her? Would the tumor shrink away and disappear as if there was nothing ever there? And Father, may we be able to go, look what God did. Look what God is able to do. Look what God loves to do. Father, may she be a vessel in your hands, declaring your glories and your wonders and your miracle work. We ask these things in your precious and your holy name. Amen. Amen. 